The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Apologetics Zero show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Phil Stone, and on this episode, I am joined by His Lordship, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome, my Lord. Thank you for having me. Restoration Radio is pleased to present the Zero episode for Apologetics, and as such, this episode is free to the public. The Apologetics show will be a members-only show, so the episodes after this one will only be available for download by members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar. Our extensive website will show you a vast array of shows to download if you become a member. So, my Lord, obviously this is my first show as host and I'm a convert to Catholicism, so I thank God for the opportunity to uh, stretch myself, uh, so to speak. But I guess from my point of view, I jumped at the chance to host a show on Restoration Radio uh, when I learned that it was a show on apologetics, uh, the defence of our faith. I was very excited, uh, not only to explore the subject more intellectually, but also the opportunity to learn a whole lot more about it. Uh, I think there's a desire to defend our faith ingrained in Catholic hearts, especially the heart of a convert um, such as myself. And after all, I still get all sorts of grief from my Protestant parents who are conflicted between whether they're happy that I'm going back to church or mortified that I became a Catholic. Um, as this is the zero episode, uh, zero show for apologetics, uh, it's probably best if we take our listeners through the reasons for apologetics what it is and why it is important, as well as understanding some of your thinking around the basis for this show. So, my Lord, uh, could you please outline why you wanted to do this show and how is apologetics different to simply learning our faith through the catechism? Yes, it's quite different. Uh, Apologetics uh, is rooted in the word apologia in Greek, which means defense. Uh, Unfortunately, the English word has become practically the opposite, that you're apologizing, you're saying you're sorry. Uh, but the original term means uh, the, the science of the defense of the faith. Uh, you may know that Cardinal Newman wrote Apologia for, uh, for uh, Provita Sua. Uh, that was a defense of his life. He was uh, defending himself. And uh, so the, the, you, know, the, you have to understand that root of the word. And so the uh, apologetics is uh, this science of defending the faith against its naysayers, against those who deny it. Also pointing out, uh, it has a positive side, and that is to point out the credibility of the Catholic faith to those who are interested. And let me explain that a little bit. Uh, the, in order to become a Catholic, you uh, must see the credibility of the Catholic faith. That is to say, you must see its characteristics, its, its credentials as a true religion. Otherwise, your, your decision to become a Catholic is based on error or, or nothing, uh, uh, on mush, 
why would you become a Catholic except that you see that it has the credentials of the true religion? And so apologetics wants to manifest the credentials of the Catholic faith as the true religion, the single true religion, uh, and it wants to respond to those who attack it. So those are the two objects of apologetics, to to demonstrate the credibility of the Catholic faith, and secondly, to respond to its deniers and its attackers. And we'll do both of those things in this show. Thanks, Maud. Um, so I came to Catholicism from a, a basic desire for truth, I suppose. Um, I started discussing Catholicism uh, at a condemning a friend of mine and um, because I had these Protestant notions of uh, what Catholicism was and, um, and he essentially shot me down in uh, flames and, and said to me, you obviously know nothing about it and go and find out a bit more about it and then come and talk to me. And that's what got me interested. So it was yes, a basic most desire of the truth. criticisms of Catholicism come from ignorance of Catholicism. Yes. It comes from a misunderstanding of what Catholicism says and stands for. Uh, almost all of them, I mean, in my experience, uh, you know, that uh, we worship statues or, you know, obviously idiotic things like that, but also other misconceptions, or that we deny the grace of God because we insist on works for salvation, therefore, you know, we don't attribute anything to the grace of God. That, that's a common, very common Protestant misconception. Um, uh, you know, Virgin Mary is like a goddess. You know, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was uh, one all of the things that are just totally. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm sure as you know, uh, and and yes, most of it uh, it comes from that. We we exist over here in a mostly Protestant country, and and we hear a lot of that stuff. And so, uh, but that's so that you know, apologetics is there also to clear up those things. So in my research for for the show, and especially um, for the Zero show, uh, I thought to myself, there's this uh, ingrained uh, desire by man, and you said it very well in um, the This Is Catholicism show, man has a desire to know the answer to the question, why do we exist? And it's because he craves the truth, and that's ingrained in him. And there was a a quote that uh, David Goldstein, um, the former Jew and convert to Catholicism, said... um, uh, there is nothing so powerful as, and so necessary as truth for the guidance of man, the moral basis of which is religion. This is deeply appreciated by converts to Catholicism due to their having journeyed the intellectual road to the realisation of the soundness of Catholic reasoning and the positive, uncompromising adherence of the Catholic Church to Christian moral principles. So they find the Catholic religion to be a profound intellectual religion, which therefore appeals to man's highest endowment, his reasoning facility. And that really hit me as, as something um, that this uh, that Catholicism is is an intellectual matter as opposed to an emotional one, which the, uh, the Protestants uh, adhere to. So, yes, that is a big attraction of Catholicism. Uh, and and it, it does hit you, you know, it's one of the first things that hits you, uh, mm. that it has an uncompromising moral code and a very high one. Uh, That it believes that certain things are intrinsically evil and cannot be done for any reason whatsoever. Uh, And it holds to that. It it has sacrificed a great deal in order to hold to it. And it has been very consistent in those things. Uh, That is appealing because truth by its very nature is religious truth concerning God who never changes is by its very nature unchanging. 
Man's nature yes. is unchanging. God is unchanging. So the, the moral truths are going to be unchanging. And people can figure that out, and they see it in Catholicism, and they don't see it anyplace else. And, and that's why there, it's a, a, a star in the sky, that mm, there's something very different about this religion. The other thing they see about it is that it has a great deal of coherence, that, the, that it's all of its dogmas and its theology and everything about it as you get into it is all coherent and consistent. Uh, that is also attractive to Catholics as they examine uh, to non-Catholics as they examine the Catholic faith. But as yeah. you said, you know, you have to. Our Lord said, "You have to be of the truth." Those who are of the truth hear my voice. And it, while it is true that all men have an inclination to know the truth, uh, an awful lot of them stifle it by their their lust and their uh, their worldliness and all sorts of other sins, where they lose interest in it. Uh, and uh, but you know some uh, do manage to by the grace of God. If you're if you can't even think about hell or fear hell without the grace of God, and mm-hmm. so if you're moved by the grace of God and you don't resist the grace of God, uh, a study of the Catholic faith will necessarily bring you to uh, uh, an embracing of the Catholic faith. <clears throat> it will have yes, all the uh, hallmarks of the true religion. Yes, uh, that's definitely what I found as uh, I went through my um, my conversion. So I suppose at this point, my Lord, um, it'd be good if we could uh, talk a little bit about our primary audience. We are obviously talking to true Catholics and, uh, and those who are trying to be true Catholics. But I'm also thinking we're probably talking to the frustrated Catholic who doesn't necessarily have the immediate answers for his Protestant co-worker or uh, the, the Mormon slash Jehovah's Witness uh, who comes knocking at the door thrusting a pamphlet in his face or maybe even the condescending Novus Ordo friend who says, you just belong to a cult, so you're not a true Catholic. Uh, so could you just outline the audience for this show who we're trying to breach here? Well, those are very specific things you just brought up. We're going to primarily talk about the general proofs of the credibility of the Catholic faith. Uh, however, at times we can address those things, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Novosordites. Uh, we can address all of those things uh, you know, in a specific way. But first you have to really build the, the, the foundations of, of the proofs of credibility before you, you get into those things. A, a Catholic well-trained should know why his religion is the one for religion why everyone ought to embrace it. And, uh, you know, he, he should not uh, concentrate merely on this or that response to this or that person. Um, so, uh, so you know, this will be a fairly lengthy uh, show, I think, in a sense, you know, a series, uh, because we should give it everything that it deserves, and, and Catholics uh, should know not only their catechism, but also how to defend their faith. Yes, very much looking forward to it, and um, it's a little bit of a, an intro or a sneak preview of our, our first show as we start talking about, uh, I suppose, religion in general, but that's uh, in the next episode. Mm-hmm. So but back to the basics, you've chosen the, the, the text, my Lord, The Defense of the Catholic Faith by Francis X. Doyle, uh, SJ. However, it's not available, so far as I can tell, in the public domain as a PDF or ebook for our listeners, so... Um, Used and reprinted copies are available from many online second-hand booksellers, but uh, I suppose our, 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 some of our listeners may already have a copy that they can use. 
Um, but given that many won't necessarily have a copy of this book um, to follow along, it's fair to say that we will have to explain um, this quite deeply. Uh, can you tell us uh, why you've chosen this book and, um, and why this author in particular? Well, there's a lot of books on apologetics out there, and you know the Catholic Church made a, a tremendous effort with the um, with non-Catholics in this country, and I'm sure in Australia as well, and in uh, Great Britain and the uh, UK. Uh, the uh, uh, so there was a good deal of literature, um, and I just examined all of them. Uh, I, I felt that this one uh, did a very thorough job, a question and answer, which is always the best way, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, and uh, uh, went very methodically. Uh, that's what I liked about him. He was logical and methodic. Not all of them are so logical and methodic as, as this author, and very complete, too. So, um, uh, And, you know, at the same time, approachable. He didn't get into too many technical things and things that would be over the head of the average person. So I actually used this to bring in a number of non-Catholics um, about a year or so ago, and uh, it was very effective. Uh, and uh, so I, I have already used the book, and I like it very much. Well, I'm, I'm adopting the approach that um, I haven't actually read this book prior to uh, starting this show, so I'm a few chapters ahead, but I'm trying to... Um, Take this, if you will, like I'm representing the listeners who may not also have read this book and, and, and trying to learn stuff as well and ask some, even some silly questions along the way just for a, a clarification. So I hope, hope that makes sense to you. But while we're um, here, I might just pause at the moment and just remind our listeners that you are listening to the Apologetics Zero show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Phil Stone. I'm joined by his Lordship, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been discussing the reasons for doing an apologetics show in particular. We want to remind you that apologetics is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. So, my Lord, just uh, if you can outline the structure of this text and uh, especially perhaps for some of those listeners who wouldn't have necessarily have available copy of the book and the course of study that we're about to undertake, how are you going to present it um, and, and specifically how, how deep it goes? Well, if we look at the table of contents, uh, first he talks about religion in general. So there you distinguish between uh, natural religion and supernatural religion. And, and then in, in the second chapter, he'll talk about revelation. God has revealed a religion, so that's obviously supernatural uh, revelation. Chapter 3, recognizing a divine revelation. What are the ways in which we know that uh, the revelation is true, that it comes from God versus uh, all sorts of other revelations that are false, uh, uh, that, that have no... Uh, um, truth behind them. They're just inventions of human beings. So what's, what's the criterion? That's a very important point. Uh, then he talks about the documents of Christian revelation. That'll be the Gospels and, the, and all of the, the entire sacred scripture. Um, uh, he talks about the biographical notes of the evangelists, because he gives in this book, we won't do it, but he gives a... Um, a summary of the life of Christ all the way through. So uh, each uh, instruction is preceded by a summary of the life of Christ, and it's very good. Uh, and I recommend it to anybody. 
Uh, it's just that we will not cover that specifically. So uh, he does in, in Chapter 6, however, which we need to see, uh, the, uh, the, the fact he says the Gospels are genuine documents. He says, that's the first question. How do I know that the, this book that I have in my hand is from God? Mm-hmm. See, he's going to address all of that. I'm going to to base my whole life, my whole moral life and religious life, on this document that's in front of me. How do I know that that this is the true Word of God and not the Book of Mormon? See, that's a very important question. And and so uh, so are these these Gospels written by the people that they? that they claim to be written by, or were they written by, you know, some woman in the 12th century? You know, <laughs> you know I'm being facetious, but that, that must be answered. Uh, then uh, are these trustworthy documents, were the authors of these documents, uh, the uh, the apostles and, and St. Luke and, and St. Mark, uh, oh, are were they, uh, you know, uh, people, were they deceivers? Uh, you know, did they have some ulterior motive? Or were they just telling stories? Um, uh, then the next chapter, number eight, the Gospels are complete documents. So, do we have everything? You know, is, is there something missing from these documents? Uh, do we just have a little piece of them? So, you know, those are all legitimate questions. Uh, then we're getting it gets into the the what we might call the logic of apologetics, chapter nine. Christ claimed that he was a prophet. See, we, we're going to sh- show Christ as a representative of God. See, because you need the faith to say that he is God. And apologetics is going to uh, treat you as not having the faith yet. So we're just going to say first that he is a representative of God. Then in chapter 10, we're going to show that he claimed to be the, the Messiah. Um, and then in chapter 11, we're going to show that he actually claimed to be God. See? That, uh, and in chapter 12, uh, that he, he claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, chapter 13, that uh, he said to the Pharisees that he was the Son of God. Chapter 14, um, <clears throat> he claimed to be the Son of God in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, chapter 15, uh, he claimed that he had the nature of God. Uh, chapter 16, Christ claimed divine knowledge. Chapter 17, Christ claimed divine activity. Chapter 18, Christ claimed divine powers. So we're showing that he claimed to be God and he had, that he claimed all of the characteristics of God. Chapter 19, um, <clears throat> that uh, that he was the true Messiah and the true Son of God was a public fact known to all classes and conditions of the people in the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. So that it wasn't some sort of secret. Now, chapter 20, did Christ deceive men with regard to his mission? That's to, to answer the critics. Um, uh, chapter 21, was Christ himself deceived with regard to his mission? See, that's again a, a rationalist accusation that he didn't know what he was talking about, and he had this idea that you know some so, like he was some sort of a nut that thought he was a representative of God. Uh, chapter twenty-two, a brief synopsis of the fundamental doctrines of Jesus. So 
that, that is very typical of apologetics is a summary of the doctrines of Christ. Um, <clears throat> chapter 23, in proof of his mission, Christ uttered true prophecies. So the the proof of Christ's mission, see, the, the first part is, this is Christ's mission, this is what he claimed to be. Now this part will be, well, how did he prove that? Well, he uttered true prophecies that were fulfilled. Uh, he also worked miracles, chapter 24. Objections against Christ's miracles answered, so we answer the, the deniers. Um, <clears throat> then chapter 26, Christ, uh, as he foretold, rose from the dead, which is his principal miracle. Um, chapter 27, Christ rose from the dead to prove his mission. Chapter 28, objections against the resurrection answered. So, you know, rationalists have attacked that. You see, the faith has come under a great deal of attack in the past 300 years, and especially since the 18th century, particularly. So the Church had to ramp up a great deal its defense of the faith, and that's why you, you see these chapters on the, <coughs> responding to the deniers. Chapter 29, the testimony of Christianity to the divinity of Christ, the miracles of the apostles. So the apostles also perform miracles. Chapter 30, the testimony of the apostolic age. Well, what, how did the, those who claim to be Christians act in that age? Did they carry on the message of Christ and so forth? Chapter 31, the testimony of the church from the apostolic age to the council of Nicaea. So let's take a look at the, the church as, as it existed from the time of the Apostles to 325 A.D. and see if it conforms to the church of today. See, uh, Because everyone would say, well, that church must be the original Christian church. So if, if the, that church conforms to the church of today, then the church of today must be the original Christian church. That's the argument. Mm. The Testimony of the Martyrs, chapter 32. Chapter 33, the testimony from the rapid spread of the Christian religion. So that's a very strong argument that, you know, St. Peter was a Jew arriving in Rome, telling the Romans that they had to, to set aside their state gods, whom they considered to be protectors of Rome, and for whom... Beautiful temples were built in the forum. Set those aside and believe that a crucified Jew in Palestine, which was a, the most awful uh, province for the Romans hmm. uh, in Judea, uh, because it gave them so much trouble, that you have to worship as the one true God, a crucified Jew. Hmm. This was the, the test. <laughs> that was set upon the apostles and their successors to convert this absolutely lust-filled and, and cruelty-filled pagan world of polytheism and tell them that they must fix their attention upon a crucified Jew. I mean, you couldn't get a, a, a harder thing to convince someone of, and yet, without any help from the state, and without any uh, force of arms, the, the Christian religion triumphed in the Roman Empire. Uh, so that's a very important um, argument. 
uh, chapter 36, Christ made his teaching body infallible. So we're going to see what characteristics Christ gave to his church and see if those characteristics correspond to the church in our century. Uh, chapter 37, Christ also gave the apostles the power to rule and sanctify men. Uh, 38, Christ promised to give Peter the primacy of universal jurisdictions, or the papacy. <clears throat> 39, Christ fulfilled his promise and gave Peter the primacy. Chapter 40, who is the successor of Peter in the primacy? So we're going to look at the succession of popes after St. Peter. Uh, 41, Christ himself directly established his church as a religious society. So that's going to respond to those who say <coughs> that the church sort of evolved. Those, those are the modernists. That there was a movement that Christ founded, but then it evolved into a church. And we'll respond to that. Uh, chapter 42, the nature and characteristics of Christ's church. That means the one that he founded. Uh, 43, Christ's church with its powers to teach and rule is perpetual and unchangeable. So that that means that it wasn't meant to die out after he died or after the apostles died, and that it was meant to be the same forever. Uh, chapter 44, by the will of Christ, his church is necessary for salvation. So we're going to show that it's not merely an option for people to join, but that it's necessary. <laughs> it's the one way to God which makes absolute sense if you accept that Christ is the Son of God. Uh, Christ's church, in uh, chapter 45, is apostolic. 46, he founded only one church, that there are not many churches, or as one person told me back in the 1980s who thought that God was a woman, said to me, <laughs> there are many roads to Grandma's house. All right? Well, there are not, there, first of all, there's no Grandma. Uh, secondly, there's only one road, right? Although uh, I think uh, Bergoglio recently said that God is both a man and a woman. I think something like that. Yeah. Both father and mother. That's right. Both father and mother, which is an ancient myth, by the way, like a a bisexual god. <clears throat> that that's like a really that goes way back uh, to the ancient myths of you know the East and all. So anyway, yeah. that's. Uh, but he says there's no Catholic God anyway, so I guess we don't. Uh, in chapter 47, the Church of Christ is Catholic. Uh, 48, it's holy. The Church of Christ is visible. So we're, we're saying that these are characteristics which Christ wanted for his Church. So we haven't identified the Catholic Church yet as the, as the Church of Christ, but he wanted these things for his Church. Now, chapter 50 finding the Church of Christ, the marks mm. of the Church. So we're going to apply all of that that we learned concerning Christ's intention for his Church and say, where is it? It must be someplace. He said it would last until the end of time and that he would be with it until the end of time. Well, where is it? And then in 51, 52, and 53, and right to the end, we're going to show how the Catholic Church and it alone corresponds to what Christ intended for his church. So and, that that's the it, whole book. And, and it's still here despite having no pope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, when we say the church, we're not talking about the thing that Bergoglio is, is you know, in charge of. 
the we're talking about the true faith in the true church uh, as it has always historically existed and which continues to exist in those who are uh, baptized and who profess the true faith uh, i suppose my my reaction to to starting to read the book and looking over the structure of the book is is once again um it just fits it it takes you through chronologically and 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 um and logically step by step all the way back um, from the start, you know, why is religion essential? All the way to the end, which is where is the one true church? How do you find it and um, and identify it and uh, and belong to it? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it is pretty much. I mean, he does an excellent job, uh, but it is pretty much standard fare of apologetics. Hmm. Um, but he does the best job that I have seen for a layperson. Uh, you know, there are, of course, we have Latin apologetics books that are, you know, more complex than this. But the he does a great job for the layperson, and, and I think any reasonable layperson, after reading this book, would be in, inclined to become a Catholic. Uh, I, I, he really lays it out, and that, that's why I, I like the book. <clears throat> so part of my, um, uh, uh, for want of a better term, anxiety as I started to read. Uh, read this book is, uh, oh my gosh, is this going to be too highfalutin, maybe too too uh, too much uh, towards theology and uh, and quite uh, scholarly, a bit too philosophical? So could you uh, just explain, I suppose, the difference between um, theology and uh, apologetics, and but also how does philosophy fit into this subject? And um, and then if we can just show with a little bit about the presuppositions and um, talking about certitude in, uh, in apologetics. Yes, well, you have to distinguish a number of things. First, dogma or doctrine, the same thing. That is the, the teaching of the Catholic Church, uh, that, for example, Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist. That's a dogma. Our Lady was and is a virgin and, and always will be a virgin. That's a dogma. Um, the Immaculate Conception is a dogma. <clears throat> so theology is to take those dogmas and to make conclusions from those dogmas. So if we take, for example, the dogma that Christ is God, well, we would necessarily conclude that he knew all things. See? And, and you could not escape that conclusion. If he's God, he must know all things. Uh, we could make many other conclusions from the fact that he's true God. We know that he's true man, so we make conclusions from that. He can, he's able to suffer, for example. Uh, so theology draws out the conclusions from the sacred doctrines that are contained in Revelation and proposed by the Church. And it usually does that by means of philosophy. Philosophy is the science of the highest causes of existence and the, the world. And uh, it is abstract, and the, the Church uses philosophy in order to uh, theologize, in order to draw out conclusions from the, what is revealed. So that's the, that's the nature of philosophy. Now, apologetics is the science that is going to defend the dogmas, defend theology, sacred theology, from those who deny it is also going to point out the credibility of the dogmas. Now, when I say credibility, that does not mean it's going to try to prove the dogmas, 
because they come from revelation and can only be be known by revelation. But we're going to show that they ought to be believed because they have the characteristics of revelation. They, they are showing hallmarks of having been revealed by the various motives that, that uh, uh, we'll see. But uh, that, that it is not an unreasonable act or some blind leap of faith that you take when you say, I want to become a Catholic. I want to believe these doctrines. I, I see why I should believe these doctrines. That, that is the, the final conclusion of apologetics. So it really is the, uh, in the course of the seminary, the first dogmatic course is apologetics. It's the sort of the introduction to all theology and all dogma, uh, and um, uh, the uh, and also you know the seminarian has to learn how to bring someone who's non-Catholic into the Catholic faith. So mm. th- that's another beauty of the Catholic Church, and that is it is always based on reason. You see, it's not going to tell you that, you know, you've got to make a, a blind leap like Kierkegaard and all of these people, uh, that, that uh, you know, you have to throw yourself on the Savior and, and all your sins are forgiven. It's never going to say anything like that to you. It's going to say that this is a perfectly reasonable thing for you to do. Not only is it reasonable, but it's necessary if you look at all of the motives, and you ought to do it. And, uh, and, and know exactly what you're doing when you walk into it. Uh, yeah. That's what it's going to say to you. You know, where both eyes are open, and there's there's no. Uh, you could explain to someone why you decided to do it. <clears throat> you know, so that's, that's the ideal look. conversion. Many people ask me, you know, why did you become a Catholic? I mean, you know, you weren't even raised a Catholic. Um, how does one like you become a Catholic? Um, and uh, my simple answer to that, um, and I'm hoping to get a few more uh, better arguments than this uh, <laughs> through the course of this show, but um, my simple answer is I couldn't deny the truth. And um, well, it's not necessarily the lightning bolt that is, um, you know, I suppose exemplar in uh, in Protestant conversions as they, you know, they're saved and born again or whatever. Um, that seems to me to be a numbers game. The, um, the, the Protestant uh, religions just trying to get as many people as they can through the door. Whereas um, one of the things that struck me about uh, about Catholicism as I started to get and want to know more was, well, just hold on. Until you know everything we believe and you also believe it, you can't walk in that door. Um, you must. Right. There's a certain posture there. So um, that's, uh, that's the beauty of, of, of this. It just um, exudes truth, I suppose. It does. It has again all the hallmarks. It uh, yes. I, I mean, I tell people whom I'm converting. I I don't want you until you are making very clear uh, testimony to me and valid testimony that you see this as the true religion for the motives that I'm going to give you. But I don't want you as some sort of a phony or or fake or or superficial convert. We don't want you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, you know a building is only as strong as the foundation it rests on, and what you're doing in apologetics is really building the foundations of the faith, um, yes. the uh, of making that act of faith. And uh, if it's resting on on a poor knowledge of credibility, for example, if you're becoming Catholic to please your girlfriend or something like that, uh, as you know, some did, I'm sure, uh, and. 
you know, the, the conversion is poor and, uh, and is always shaky. I suppose there's a couple of other things that we, um, before we close the show, that are covered in the introduction to the book, and it's around presuppositions and, and uh, also certitude, which gives a little bit of time for. Is there anything you'd like to add around those two, two issues? Yes, he he is not covering. He says we presuppose, as already conclusively proved in philosophy, one that God exists. So we're not going to go through the uh, the proofs of the existence of God. That would be another great show to do that, but we're not doing it here. And two, uh, he's presupposing that man has a spiritual, immortal soul, reason, and free will. All of those things are able to be known from reason. And uh, so uh, you don't need to have a Bible to know those things, that uh, that man has an immortal soul. And... Uh, uh, you know, this, uh, I'll just give you. I was talking to uh, someone close to me, uh, relative, uh, just a few days ago, and uh, he uh, uh, was saying, "Oh, it's too bad when somebody dies. You know, all of their skills die with them, and all their knowledge dies with them." And I said back, "This was a text thing." I said, "Yes, the only thing that remains is your intellectual memory, which does not uh, uh, is not corrupted with the body." So I got a question mark back, and so I explained to him the difference between the sensitive memory and the intellectual memory, which is all philosophy. And I said the intellectual memory is not affected, and you will still know very abstract things like inadmissibility or or infallibility, indefectibility, all of these very abstract and in immaterial things that we know. And so he said, oh, that's just, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I know where you're coming from. It's, uh, you know, just a lot of wishful thinking that there's an afterlife and all of this. So I responded, I, I figured you would say that, but your system does not understand, does not, excuse me, your system doesn't explain why human beings know immaterial things and that they crave immaterial things in order to be happy, such as justice and love and loyalty, and many other uh, immaterial things that, that they know and they want to have. Uh, yeah. So then I got nothing back. But usually he shuts down when I engage him. So, <laughs> uh <laughs> But uh, he sort of knows what's coming. It's actually my brother. And he always said, you know, you were more intelligent than I ever was. And and I think he knows when to to pull back. Uh, But uh, I would have said to him that your system involves a much greater act of faith than our system does. Because there's so many holes in it uh, that, that you have to, you know, talk about a leap of faith. To, to believe in the humanistic, secularistic system where, where you know, human beings come from nothing, and, or gorillas or something like that. And, and uh, I mean, whew, boy, is that a credo and a half. Uh, you know, they, they, big act of faith to believe in that. And, and, uh, and uh, I always say, you know, you, you have a credo that's too difficult for me to recite. And uh, so anyway, this is, so we're presuming that the soul exists, immortal soul, reason, and free will. All of those things are, are, are from reason. And he also said to me, you know, this is all your theology. 
I said back to him, we haven't even touched theology here. We haven't even touched it. This is all available from reason, what I'm saying to you. Then he shut down. (laughs) 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 Nothing. Not even, let's change the subject. So uh, 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 the thing in war yeah. is when you when you when you haven't got a defense, you walk off the battlefield. And, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, so I thought it was a little amusing. Usually we we avoid subjects like that, but when he brought that up, you know, I, I couldn't resist it. So um, <laughs> that that was funny. Uh, so, so as we are making those presuppositions, but we could go through a whole show proving all that God exists and that there is a spiritual, immortal soul, reason, and free will. If anytime you're ready, I'll do that show. So well, I'll make sure um, Stephen Heine gets that uh, that note to see if we can create one um, for you, my lord. Um, the um, the last thing was just about uh, certitude in, in apologetics uh, to close off the show. Uh, yes, uh, certitude. Uh, he defines as firm, firm assent to a perceived reality. So we are certain, say, that there's a thunderstorm <laughs> or something like that. We perceive it, and, and uh, we have the evidence for it. The, the cause of certitude is evidence. So we are in doubt if we don't have sufficient evidence, or we might have just an opinion if we don't have sufficient evidence. We think, well, this is probably so, but I'm not too sure. But certitude in the strict sense is uh, uh, something supported by clear evidence where we can see why we believe something. Mm. See, where we understand why we know something, whether we, we see it with our own eyes or whether we believe it. Uh, and so uh, we want to arrive at certitude concerning the credibility of the Catholic faith, that it is something that ought to be believed because it has all of the characteristics of divine revelation. Thanks, my lord. As we close out this episode, we've covered an introduction to apologetics and what it is. Uh, This show is especially for you true Catholics looking for a study that will assist you in defending your faith against whatever arguments um, from Protestants or other non-Catholics or even uh, those who think they're Catholics. Uh, I want to thank you, my lord, for your time in being with us on this episode. Uh, Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our our episode? I think uh, I've uh, said enough for today. Well, once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon as we continue this series. God bless you. Thank you. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at apologetics at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Bishop Sanborn, and rest assured that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Phil Stone. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.